Okay. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I think perhaps I should declare at the outset that I haven't done any research on Prima, prima DOS. Um, but I have, uh, I have worked on the Practilol um, UK drug safety disaster of the early and mid-70s and the Opran UK drug safety disaster of the early 1980s and um, the Vioxx uh, drug disaster, particularly in the US, um, in 2004. Um, Practilol was an angina drug. Um, Opran was a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory arthritis drug. Um, and Vioxx was also an, an anti-inflammatory arthritis drug. And I just, I mentioned Vioxx just by way of, uh, to make the point that um, you know, I wouldn't want people to leave this conference thinking that the sort of issues we're talking about here in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s are consigned to history. Um, so because Vioxx is the biggest drug safety disaster in the history of the US, with an estimated excess 60 to 100,000 uh, cases of heart attacks and strokes, including many deaths. So um, Massive drug disasters are with us well beyond these decades. It's not as if we fixed the problem in some way. Um, the other thing I want to say by way of introduction is that it's partly as a response to, to some of the things that were said in the film, which is that um, I don't think we should think about drug safety and drug safety controversies in terms of proof of safety or proof of lack of safety. And the reason for that is that in nearly all of these drug safety um, cases, there's considerable scientific uncertainty about, uh, about whether or not the drug causes safety. Um, and I can't go into the details in the time available, but the kinds of uncertainties you might be looking at are extrapolating results from animal studies to humans, like in rats and mice or something, you know, the, extra, the uncertainty involved in extrapolating across species. Or it could be pharmacoepidemiological uncertainties about what levels of statistical association or probabilities there are between populations who take the drug, this is population of people who take the drug, and populations of people who don't take the drug. Um, the other comment I'd make, which is just in relation to what was just said, is that there's also a distinction, it seems to me, between um, proof of causality and knowing the causal mechanism. So, you know, you can make a judgment about causality without knowing the causal mechanism. There are loads of, cause, there are loads of things about cancer we don't know the causal mechanism of. But if you give a drug to a rat, and 99% of the drugs drop dead in, in two weeks from multiple tumours, you can pretty, be pretty sure it's a carcinogen, right? Even if you haven't got a clue what the causal mechanism is. So we, we, so we need to be quite careful about all this. The reason I say that is because my talk is mostly going to be about the political culture of, um, of key agencies that shape the regulation of drug safety in the UK in, these peri in, these, in this period that's relevant to prima dos, the 50s, the 60s, and the, and the early 70s. And while I'm giving my talk, I want you to think about this question 
I want you to be thinking about the question, who is likely, or who is getting the scientific, the benefit of the scientific doubt about drug safety? And how likely is it that these particular individuals or, or committees or agencies or so on, or how likely is it that they will give the benefit of the doubt um, of our own scientific uncertainty? Highlight is that they will give the benefit of the scientific doubt to the interests of patients and public health over and above the, the commercial interests of pharmaceutical companies. Now, one thing, we, one thing we know is that all the actors involved in these controversies, the regulators, the expert scientific advisory committees, and the industry, they all publicly say that the purpose of pharmaceuticals is to improve patients and public health and well-being. None of them publicly say, you know, we, have, we produce pharmaceuticals and we regulate them in order to harm people. None of them say that, right? They all say publicly that the purpose is to um, benefit patients and public health. So logically, uh, we would expect them to be giving the benefit of the doubt to patients and public health rather than the commercial in interests of, of industry. That's, that follows logically from, from that. Um, but we also know that since formal regulation has been established, backed up by legislation, that they have a legal duty to prioritise the, to, to prioritise and protect patients and public health over the commercial interests of companies and industry. So they have that legal duty as well. Okay, so bearing all that in mind, Let's now look at how do, how, do these, how do these expert committees and regulators and industry, how do they talk to each other about these issues? And then let's think about how likely is it that they are doing what we would expect them to be doing and indeed what the law is, is saying they should be doing. Okay, so let's start with the golden era, the so-called golden era of pharmaceuticals. So this is... Uh, the 1930s, we get the antibacterial sulfur drugs are, are discovered and developed, and then we get penicillin and antibiotics. So this is golden air of magic bullets that, that the pharmaceutical industry has produced. Um, and this motivates, this together with the, this together with the creation of the, the NHS in 1948, motivates really the beginnings of some sort of patchwork of formal, semi-formal UK drug regulation. Um, what motivates it, however, is the fact that because we're getting lots of these new powerful drugs, they increasingly are drugs that have to be given by doctors on prescription. And now that we've got an NHS, this means the government's got to pay for them, because the government, the government and the NHS have got to pay for these drugs, because they're prescription drugs. You don't go to a supermarket or pharmacy and get them over the counter. So, as you can see here, we, we get a trebling of the, of the cost of drugs to the state in, 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 in this period, in 1951, compared with before we had the NHS when things were dealt with under the National Health Insurance Act of 1911, when it was like people got medical benefit, but everybody didn't have access to NHS drugs. So the Ministry of Health, which is, would be now known as the Department of Health, the Ministry of Health establishes this thing called the Joint Committee on Prescribing um, 
under a guy called Lord Cohen. And he, he basically advises the Ministry of Health that what we need to do is we need to categorise drugs according to those that have some effectiveness or efficacy, and then drugs that basically have little or no efficacy, and we should say the drugs that have little or no efficacy shouldn't be prescribed on the NHS, right? So again, the focus is on the cost of drugs and drug efficacy at this, in, this in this period, not drug safety. But it does tell us interesting things about political culture, because basically, the, uh, when the joint, the joint Committee of Prescribing suggests that we should uh, provide a list to doctors and the NHS, publish a list basically saying these are drugs that shouldn't be prescribed on the NHS, um, and the Ministry of Health in 1951, in addition to that, concludes that there's basically no effective control in the UK over, over drug products. Uh, and that, that all the existing provisions are inadequate. So the industry then responds to this by saying, well, look, you know, um, we don't really like this. Um, I'll, I'll read this quote really quickly, but it's quite telling. It says, if the well-known brand and names of preparations disappear, they will no longer figure in the medical journals published here and be circulated widely overseas. And this will make it more difficult for the export industry to develop overseas. The contribution of the industry should be taken as a whole. It's helped in reducing the problems of the Chancellor of the Exchequer by maintaining the value of sterling abroad. should be put alongside its ability to deliver, to deliver the goods for our own health service. The two sets of factors are inseparable. So what the industry is saying is, look, we, you know, we're economically important to the UK economy, and uh, you need to be careful about you know, taking steps that undermine that, even if it means the NHS is paying for useless drugs. Effectively, that's what they're saying. But how does the government respond? Well, the, the response of the Board of Trade which, would now be, which was subsequently known as the Department of Industry and now would be known as Department of Biz. Uh, so they say, well, they sort of say, well, yeah, you know, we're, we're worried about this. We don't want to, we don't want to damage our, our industry. And um, so can we make sure that this list of banned, so-called banned drugs that the joint, that Lord Cohen's committee has constructed that are lack any, lack any evidence of efficacy, can we keep it secret? You know, not tell anybody, because it's, you know. Um, so the reason I want to mention this, even though it's about drug efficacy and the cost of drugs, is it, it's, 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 part of, it's part of the development of the culture of secrecy around government regulation of the pharmaceutical sector. Um, Despite these protests, they decided they would publish uh, this list, but very discreetly, to NHS doctors. Okay. And over time in the 1950s, the government really gave up, really accepted the pharmaceutical industry's argument that exports were, exports were so important that there should be no real no real government intervention in regulating pharmaceutical prices. So they, they developed this voluntary program, which is basically asking the industry how would they want how did they want drug prices to be regulated? And then they just and then they agreed a, a system. 
1958, they concluded basically this system hadn't made any savings, hardly at all. So it had been ineffective, but it, it had been agreed with industry. Um, so there was a. So this is this is just to show you that how the government is reluctant to regulate the pharmaceutical industry in any sort of stringent way. And I think this comment at the bottom here is quite revealing. It says, well, unwelcome as restrictions were, there was a duty to safeguard the health of the public. But pressure mounts, uh, we still have no formal regulation of pharmaceuticals for safety or efficacy in the UK at this point, none whatsoever. Um, so pressure is mounting, though, for some kind of regulatory system to be, to be introduced. Um, so the a Commons Committee recommends that all drugs should be subjected to independent clinical trials rather than being done by the pharmaceutical companies. The government should set up some sort of clinical trials committee to organize this. Uh, working Party on Medicines Legislation and Advertising proposes that there should be some sort of system to review the testing of every new drug. Of course, none of this is currently happening in the 1950s. The Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain says that there should be some sort of control of pharmaceuticals vested in the Ministry of Health instead of it all being controlled by the industry. Um, and even the industry itself, sensing that there was a tide you know, of, of, of government and parliamentary pressure to introduce some sort of regulation, suggests that there should be an independent voluntary trust uh, to vet new drugs, because if, if there was an independent voluntary trust, at least at least there wouldn't be it wouldn't have the force of, of, of law and legislation, but it would be a sort of a compromise that maybe they could live with. So this is the context in which the thalidomide disaster happened. So there was already there was already a move to do something about drug regulation before thalidomide, but it was motivated, and this is quite sort of the important point. Well, there are two, two important points from this part of the talk is that it was motivated by cost cutting for the NHS and, and, the, and the government. And secondly, when there was resistance from the pharmaceutical industry, the government became entirely reluctant to act and largely accepted the industry's priorities. So we get thalidomide. I think from previous talks, everybody knows what happened with thalidomide, so I'm not even going to bother talking about this slide. Um, the aftermath of thalidomide. So Lord Cohen, remember him? So after thalidomide, he seems to become a bit more courageous, and he's prompted to remark this remarkable statement, actually. He says, just after thalidomide, he says, um, well, in the previous year, more than half the drugs which had been issued have not been correctly clinically tested and that there was ample evidence of manufacturers supplying biased and unreliable information to doctors. Now, this, remember, is before we get even the Committee on Safety of Drugs, let alone the Medicines Act. Um, so I've not done any research on Primados, right? So I don't know whether Primados was adequately tested or not, clinically or otherwise. But if it wasn't, it wasn't alone. <laughs> you know, 
this is telling us that Lord Cohen, you know, the most senior scientific advisor to the government in this area at this time, is saying more than half the drugs which have been issued have not been correctly clinically tested. Okay. So, and the pharmaceutical journal, not renowned for its radical criticism of the pharmaceutical industry, was even moved to say this. It is hard to imagine a more difficult choice than that which faces a manufacturer who has to decide whether or not to withdraw a profitable drug from the market on the basis of the evidence that on the one hand the drug may be dangerous to a small number of patients and the other has valuable properties. So difficult must the choice be that it is questionable whether the manufacturer should be the one to make it. Of course at this time the manufacturer was the one making that, that choice. But, The, uh, what happened after, after that point was we then started the development of the Committee of Safety of Drugs and subsequently the Committee of Safety of Medicines, so we'll talk about it in a minute. But I just want to pause, before, I, before I, I look at that, I just want to pause for a second to reflect a bit on what's, what people say in principle about science and, and medicine. Uh, so you'll see, so this guy Robert Merton, he's an American sociologist, right? He was writing in the 1930s. He was writing mainly because he was concerned about Nazi suppression of so-called Jewish science in Germany. And he was also concerned about Stalinist suppression of so-called bourgeois science in Stalinist Russia, okay? So he says, well, you know, here's some principles and conditions for scientific science, science to progress because, you know, if you suppress so-called Jewish physics like Einstein, you'll get the wrong answers. Or if you suppress various other kinds of science in, in Stalinist Russia, science can't work, it can't, it can't progress under those sorts of conditions. We can't get good science under those conditions. So, so he says, well, we need open and free exchange of ideas and findings. Science needs to be open. Yeah, not, you know, we need to be able to openly exchange our ideas. And they need to be free from economic or political motivation. So you can't be deciding what your scientific knowledge is because you're going to get paid a lot to reach that conclusion rather than another conclusion. And tendency to treat and all exchange with caution and subject them to close scrutiny. Okay, so the, I, I highlight those three. So bear those in mind as we, as we go through this. This, this, is a, this is really what I said at the beginning. So that this is the idea that what we know about what actors say publicly, they all say we should have pharmaceuticals um, to improve health or well-being. But some sociologists and social scientists start to detect that there might be something going a bit wrong with this ideal of, of science. So, um, so this was a study of scientists in commercial industry, not just the pharmaceutical industry. And each industry scientist was asked whether the academic who was faced with a choice between publishing or selling the results of his or her work had a moral obligation to make the knowledge public to fellow scientists. Most industrial scientists, so most scientists who worked in commercial industry, felt that he or she should follow his immediate self-interest. So, 
if this is representative of scientists and commercial industry, um, it might be something that affects the, the pharmaceutical industry scientists. So let's go now go, quickly go back to our, our historical chronology. So 1962, Enoch Powell, remember him? He was the Minister of Health at this point. He appoints Lord Cohen to chair a committee to review the whole institutional framework for the UK drug safety. And amazingly, despite his previous remarks, remember those previous remarks about half the drugs that were being issued were inadequately studied. This is what he concludes in November 62 with his committee. He says, A, toxicity testing of drugs should remain the responsibility of individual pharmaceutical companies because, quote, the industry as a whole discharges that responsibility effectively within the limits of contemporary knowledge of methods and testing. A central drug or testing authority was neither desirable nor practical. And C, there should be an advisory body to review industry evidence and offer advice to companies and government about toxicity of drugs. So, Number A completely contradicts what he said earlier in the year. But nevertheless, Paul accepts A and B and then asks for further details about C. And the further details about C is the birth of the Committee on Safety of Drugs. This is the body, the body that will provide advice to companies and governments about the safety of drugs. Um, note that the, in, before, before coming up with the details of how the Committee on Safety of, of Drugs would work, the uh, Cohen's committee consulted the ABPI, that's the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. Anyway, so then he recommended Ministry of Health should appoint CSD. It would only work with the voluntary co cooperation of companies. Uh, and uh, it would review evidence on, on safety testing. Um, he also, they also said public confidence required the Committee on Safety of Drugs should be entirely independent of industry and there should be some machinery set up to do safety evaluation. So this Committee on Safety of Drugs was created. Sir Derek Dunlop was appointed as the chair and Powell states uh, that the members of the Committee on Safety of Drugs are so, of such eminence that it was unthinkable that they would submit to any influence other than scientific considerations. Unthinkable. Um, but although Cohen had recommended that the Committee on Safety of Drugs should be entirely independent of industry, members were permitted to hold consultants, consultancies with industry, and some or many did, as we'll see a bit later. So nature of the Committee on Safety of Drugs, um, well, let's have a look at some of the members and what they said, what they said about drug regulation before the Committee on Safety, before they entered the Committee on Safety of Drugs. I mean, just a few months before, not way back in history. So in 1962, Professor Wilson, who is the member, so this is what he thought about the topic. So he asserted and assumed, if a drug is shown to be harmful to animals, its use in man is not contemplated. And every reputable pharmaceutical firm and clinical investigator ensure to the best of the current knowledge that all the appropriate investigations have been done before the drug is given to man. So his view, so he enters the process with an entirely rosy, positive view of how the industry works before the, before the committee's even looked at any evidence or done any work. Um, so perhaps that tells us something about 
how he, how he will envisage working in, in the committee. Um, so the Committee on Safety of Drugs, it begins operating on the 1st of January 64. The ABPI undertook not to market or submit to clinical trial any drug without approval of the Committee on Safety of Drugs. And kind of in exchange, I suppose, the Committee on Safety of Drugs agreed that the entire process should be confidential. So this is the direct origins of the totally secret nature of drug safety regulation in the UK. What, how did the CDC, how did the Committee of Safety of Drugs work? You know, how, how tough was it on the industry? Well, we get a bit of a sense of that. If we look at some of the out, outcome data that is available. So, so first of all, the Committee of Safety of Drugs, its review of drug company evidence was rapid. Uh, on average, a new molecular entity, so this is an entirely new drug, um, on average, they would review the evidence in three months. In the first year, just 15 of the 600 applications were rejected. That's 2.5%. And just 99, 16%, um, did the CSD actually ask the company, oh, can you give us a bit more information? And in 1966, the Committee of Safety Review's annual report stated, it is fully recognized that a committee such as this might exercise a detrimental effect on pharmaceutical research progress by unduly delaying the introduction of a possibly valuable drug. So it gives you perhaps a sense of their priorities. The Committee on Safety of Drugs also uh, initiated the Yellow Card Adverse Drug React Reporting System, which some of you are probably aware of. <coughs> Another characteristic of the Committee of Safety of Drugs, which I think was slightly alluded to in the film is the incredibly small resources allocated to it. Um, and this is, I think this is nicely illustrated by this quote from um, one of the medical assessors, a guy called Cahal, up for the Committee on Safety of Drugs. So he says, um, one is often asked how the committee managed to comply with its terms of reference with so small staff. The answer is decentralization which means, since there is nowhere else to which we can decentralize, decentralization to industry. But other people who have talked about their experience of working in the, with the, with the, in the CSD suggest that this has consequences. So, so another former member says, looking back, I see only one major error in our performance, which I suggest was a rather positive uh, spin, but let's leave that aside for the moment. We were so aware of the enormous cooperation that we received from the drug industry that the main committee made every effort to see that submissions from firms were handled as rapidly as possible. As a result, the adverse reaction subcommittee and the work of that sub subcommittee suffered. So let's now quickly look at the lead up to the formal uh, legislation for pharmaceutical regulation in the medicines, the 1968 Medicines Act. So how was this shaped? Uh, and of course, initially it was a medicines bill going through Parliament. So first of all, the industry, the ABPI, the industry makes it known that it wants a CSD type formal committee to, to regulate it. Um, so so it, it likes, it likes the, the, the Dunlop Committee on Safety of Drugs approach. Um, uh, 
And interestingly, the uh, Derek Dunlop basically echoes this view in a speech he makes in March 1968. So Derek Dunlop, remember, is the chair of the Korean Safety of Drugs. He's echoing basically what the industry is saying at once out of UK drug safety regulation. And he says this, and again, you know, I, I draw attention to the fact that nowhere in this statement is some, some sort of prioritization of patients or public health. What he says is, um, he says that the, that the medical profession depends on the industry's well-being. And he warns, and I quote, from this point of view alone, we should be very chary of interfering with the reproductive processes of a goose, which has led so many golden therapeutic eggs. So he's obviously referring to the pharmaceutical industry there. Um, and later that year, the Ministry of Health reveals that it is indeed going to introduce a system that, to a large extent, mimics the Committee on, Safe, the Committee on the Safety of Drugs approach. So it's... Um, and it also, it's, it's going to introduce a medicines commission which will oversee the, the operation of the Medicines Act, uh, which would have potentially members drawn from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and it reassures critics that uh, because of that, it won't be unduly hampering industry innovation. And also, the Medicines Act will, through legislation and law, formally enshrine this all-encompassing secrecy approach to drug regulation. Um, and Dunlop is to be appointed chair of the Medicines Commission. So what sort of regulatory system was established in the UK then by the formal Medicines Act of 1968? So we have the regulatory authority, which is part of the government, that's the Department of Health, staffed by scientists who work as full-time government employees in the medicines division. It's about 50% funded by industry fees, 50% funded from taxation. And then you have all these expert advisory committees. Um, the one that's been mentioned already is the, is the Committee on Safety of Medicines, um, but you also have the Committee on Review of Medicines. Um, and you have an important subcommittee of the Committee on Safety of Medicines known as the Committee on Safety, Efficacy and Adverse Reactions, or SEER for short. Now, the expert advisory committees, members of those, they can be from academia, they can be from hospitals, they can be from scientific, government scientific labs, they can be from the NHS, but all of them are permitted to have to do work for pharmaceutical companies, to have consultancies, to get grants from them, and so on. Um, and in addition to that, we have section 118 of the 1968 Medicines Act on top of the, the 1911 Official Secrets Act, which means that the entire process is, is secret and sealed off from any sort of public accountability. And lots of reassurances that, to the industry that it would be light touch regulation. So because the system was so incredibly secretive, and remember, it started its, the Committee on Safety of Medicine started its formal work in 1971. Well, that's another thing just to mention. The Medicines Act was 1968, but it wasn't implemented until 1971 because the industry was given three years to get used to the idea, to prepare for it. 
Um, and remember, thalidomide was 1961. We didn't get any formal regulation until 1971, 10 years later. So that tells you something about the urgency with which the situation was treated. But because the whole thing was so secretive, it wasn't until 1989, after a lot of public and journalistic pressure and so on, that the Department of Health even released information about the financial interests of members of the Committee on Safety of Medicines and the other expert advisory committees. So ever since 1971, presumably they've had financial interests in companies because they were allowed to, but we didn't know the extent of it, how much, how many, what type. But in 1989, we, for the first time, the government caves in and publishes, publishes this very minimal information in some ways, but actually incredibly revealing. So, so personal interest means you have stocks and shares in companies, uh, consultancies that you benefit personally. You know, you, you can put them in your bank account. Non-personal interest means your department, let's say, if you're a scientist in a university, gets grants from the companies and, and all that sort of thing. So what you can see here is, so this MC is the Medicines Commission with 24 members. 17 of them have personal interests in the pharmaceutical industry. Seven have non-personal interests, and just five have neither. So that's about 20%. Committee of Safety of Medicines, 14 out of 21 have personal interests. 15 out of 21 of known personal interest. Just four, again, less than 20%, have neither. The subcommittee on efficacy and adverse drug reactions of the CSN, 18 members, 12 personal interests, 13 known personal interest. Just two have neither. That's kind of barely more than 10%. And the committee on review of medicines, which probably not many of you know much about what it did, but it's, as you can see, a, a minority of its members also have, have no, no interest in the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, I'm not gonna say any more about that at this stage. I'll, I'll leave that for you to draw your own conclusions. But let me say a little bit about, let me say a little bit about what some authors have said about conflicts of interest in medicine. So this is a perspective of, from medicine. Um, this is a guy called Jerome Kassir. He's former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. So any, any of you who work in medicine will know that the New England Journal of Medicine is arguably the most prestigious medical journal in the world. So this is what he says about conflicts of interest in medicine. He says, conflicts of interest are institutional weeds. They take root below the surface and become pervasive problems, often long before they show their ugliness. They breed distrust. Aside from harm to patients, they can undermine judgment and integrity and lead to self-deception. But so, but I think in some ways more interesting and revealing is to see what industry people say about conflicts of interest. So, so these, this guy, these guys, Owen and Brightigan, right, they're, they're consultants to industry and they write this book called The Regulation Game, which is, it's a kind of how-to manual about how to get expert advisors on your side, expert advisors to, to be your allies in whatever this particular dispute about science or a product or whatever it is. So, so here's, what they, here's what they say to their, to their clients who are, who are companies, right? Commercial companies. They say, 
So this is most effectively done by identifying the leading experts in each relevant field and hiring them as consultants or advisors, or giving them research grants and the like. This activity requires a modicum of finesse. It must, not, it must not be too blatant, for the experts themselves must not recognize that they have lost their objectivity in the field of action. At a minimum, a program of this kind reduces the threat that the leading experts will be available to testify or write against the interests of the regulated firms. So let's uh, now, so, so that was about the expert advisors, the people on the expert advisory committees. But then within the, within the pharmaceutical regulatory system in the UK and indeed elsewhere, but I'm just talking about the UK today, um, you also have, if you like, the civil servants, the full-time employees of the regulatory agency. Now in the UK, in this period, that's the medicines division, okay? So we're gonna just do a little bit of exploration about what do people, what do key people, what have key people in the medicines division and those sorts of institutions done? So, <laughs> so John Griffin joined the medicines division, I think, right from the start in 1971. By 1977, he'd become the head of the medicines division. So he he was the top UK pharmaceutical regulator. Okay, he was the top man in the country. And there was one week in which he went to work on Tuesday as the top regulator of the UK pharmaceutical industry. And on Wednesday, he went to work as the top man in the pharmaceutical industry. So he went from being head of the medicines division to becoming head of the ADPI. But what's more interesting is what he revealed whenever a lot of people, like journalists, asked him about this, they sort of said, well, you know, doesn't this make you feel uncomfortable or something? Don't you feel a bit old about doing that? And here's what he said. And why it's revealing, especially for, for myself as a social scientist, is, it because, is because it does generalization work for me. I know from what he says that he's not an exception. So here's what he says. He said, to justify his own actions, he said, all my deputies at the medicines division, principal medical officers, they've all been in industry. All the superintendent pharmacists and I have, have working for me, they all came from industry. It's equally clear that within the last 12 months, I'm not the only member of medical staff of the division to move back into industry. It is abundantly clear to me that the medicines division could not function if it did not recruit the expert if the expertise it requires from industry. So what he's saying here is that basically the people who work in the UK drug regulatory agencies, they nearly all come from industry, and loads of them then just go back into, into industry promoted at a higher level. And this is what we call the revolving door. And the reason why this concept of the revolving door is interest, interesting to social and political scientists is because the question is, if if this is the career profile and the career cycle of our drug regulators, how tough are they going to be on the pharmaceutical industry when they're regulated? If they know that in the future, their likely career promotion is into the industry that they're regulating. A few more examples, but these are just illustrative. After retiring as chair of the Medicines Commission in 1972, Dunlop, remember him, Derek Dunlop, 
joined the board of directors of, of the pharmaceutical company Sterling Winthrop. Frank Wells, a member of the CSN from 1977-81, became director of medical affairs at the ABPI in 1986. And in 1984, again, this is just one example of a particular year, in 1984, the 17-person Medicines Commission included five representatives of the pharmaceutical industry. The Medicines Commission is the body that oversees UK drug safety and efficacy regulations. It's overseeing our regulatory system to regulate the pharmaceutical industry. Nearly a third of its members are in the work for the industry. So, I'll conclude in about one minute now. So, what my talk is illustrating or revealing is something about the mindsets and the political culture of the key people who have shaped pharmaceutical regulation pharmaceutical regulatory decision-making and expert advisory committees in this period. And knowing about how they respond to the industry, knowing about their relationships with the industry, the question you then have to ask yourself is, is this culture and is this system, a system that is likely to give the benefit of the scientific doubt about drug safety, uncertainty and controversies, is it likely to give the benefit of the scientific doubt to the interests of patients and public health or to the commercial interests of the industry.